Welcome to Dr. Carl Grodd, a show where we explore what makes the secular sacred. I'm one of your hosts, Jameson. Consider me your resident enthusiast. And I'm joined by Professor Elbow Patches himself, the soon-to-be Dr. Ben Burnside. I thought you were going to let me introduce myself. Well, I did let you um, think that. That's what happened. So, how, hey, okay, let's uh, start over. How, introduce okay. yourself. Hi, I'm Ben Burnside. And are you going to England to get your PhD? Yes. Well, there you go. So <laughs> the introduction was valid. Welcome to our podcast. Now, I would like to say that this is the first episode, but it's really not. Much like a comic book, this is our new number one issue, which makes the first... A reboot. Yeah, the sorts. reboot, if you will. So it makes the first several episodes rarer, more valuable. <laughs> so if you can track those down, know that you, you have a living piece of history. Now, we've been on a hiatus for a couple years, but we are excited to be back to have a more regular schedule and to talk about kind of, I think, a more streamlined show. I was accused uh, at some instances of going on rants and tirades over nerdy things. Would you say that's accurate? I think that you might be priming yourself for a rant right now, actually. Well, I want to show self-control to just change the subject back to what our topic is today. We wanted to spend our reboot episode, our new number one, if you're collecting the issues at home, make sure you have a good comic book box somewhere in your closet, to talk about who is Dr. Carl Grodd, and to really reflect on what's the purpose and nature of this show, and why, if you're at home, would you be someone who would want to watch? However, having introduced that, how about we do something completely different? Okay. Uh, this is a segment we were going to do at the beginning of every episode where uh, Burnside and I would prepare a random question yeah. and ask it of the other person so you get to hear a response live on camera. But today we wanted to just ask ourselves, what first interested you into kind of the greater nerddom, if you will? If you look back at your childhood, what were some of those things where you said, I am a nerd <laughs> and I'm proud of it and been because I'm minding my manners? I'd love for you to go first. Yeah, so I, I proposed the concept of doing a nerdy autobiography since that's something that never makes it into the autobiographies we give to our churches or other people. This is, a, a, I don't know if it'd be a confessional or not, but uh, for me, what really drew me into the hobbies that I'm in was probably when I first got a Super Nintendo as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, and I got drawn into uh, uh, RJ RPGs, RPGs, role-playing games. And uh, so, you know, everyone would be, everyone had a Super Nintendo back then. It wasn't nerdy because everyone had one really, unless you had a, you know, Genesis and you were the one weird kid on the street. But everyone had one, but I got into the, the longer games, the games that were more obscure, uh, like Chrono Trigger, still one of my favorite games. But uh, what really drew me in was, you know, that that whole it, being playing role playing games or reading lots of books like I did, or watching, um, you know, sh uh, cartoon shows on on Nickelodeon. They all drew me in and had this kind of like story type element. I think we all get involved in a story. And the older I've gotten, the less I've seen, you know, nerdy hobbies as something that's weird. I think everyone involves himself into uh, whether it's an obsession or a way to frame your life everyone has one it's just when we were kids it was like if you were okay with saying yeah i love reading comic books because i like reading stories and that made you weird but nowadays I, i'm old enough and mature enough to see like 
we're no different than someone who talks about golf all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> different hobbies, different strokes for different right. folks, you could even say. So as, as, you know, openly admitting that you play board games uh, that are made for adults, not in the adult sense, but they're made for people who are of adult age. I don't know how to say that appropriately. Um, it's not as weird as going smashingly on our first episode, <laughs> no. by the way. Keep going. So you come here to talk about your fetish for adult games. Continue. No, 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 no. Um, yeah, so, so just being involved in, in, in deep narratives that spoke to me because, you know, sports really didn't speak to me that much. Um, I really wasn't one for watching those kinds of things or or even like action movies and lots, lots, of, lots of other things. I was drawn to the more comic books, more video games, more uh, Japanese presentation of things on Nintendo. So that's what drew me in. Awesome. And you've hit a little bit on what we'll get to later, which is that I think all of us, if we have hobbies, are drawn to the stories they provide. Yeah. And so when I reflect back on what first drew me into nerddom. I mean, there is one iconic show that stands out, and that's Batman, the animated series, which began in 1994. For my generation, our generation, I can't think of another cartoon that kind of did what it did, which was to take uh, kind of those fantasy characters, those characters you saw in the comics, and give them actual real stories, plots. You know, still Heart of Ice, which is an episode about Mr. Freeze, is still one of my favorite cartoon episodes of all time. And it was so interesting to me at the ripe old age of eight. uh, And it's hard to believe that Batman the Animated Series is now old enough to have graduated grad school. So congratulations to the (laughs) the Animated Series. But I still look back and that showed me, oh, wow, comic books and these hobbies can can show me emotionally effective stories. Yeah. And really allow me to engage with my mind. And I will say I have always been someone that is very cerebral, that lives in my head. And the idea and concept of Batman, uh, he really was just um, the mirror image of me as a child. (laughs) Handsome, wealthy, no. Uh, But there was something about, I thought it was so cool. Here was a man who cared so deeply about his convictions. He would train himself to the fullest extent and just help people. It also didn't hurt that as a young child, watching him punch bad guys in the face was also kind of fun. But from that, kind of went with what you said. Is that that explore? I was a huge comic person. As a child, it is weird for me when I used to be heckled as a kid, and now it's so mainstream that it's almost like people are over comic books because everyone loves comic books. Let me tell you, from back in the dark ages, when not only was it not okay to like comic books, but the 90s for comic book writing was not awesome. I didn't realize, I didn't think it was great back then, but having read comic books over the last 30 years, let's just say <laughs> it was rough. It and was comic rough. book stores were all in like warehouses that smelled terrible. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason that the comic book guy on The Simpsons was so popular. Yeah, accurate. Anyway, so (laughs) I also was into video games. You know, I I grew up playing video games with one of my good friends, Brad, down the street. Uh, I still remember getting the absolute mess whooped out of me in Street Fighter Third Strike when I was a Street Fighter kid growing up. And that opened up into other kind of RPGs, as you said, just opportunities and the one thing that maybe is worth mentioning, in case you're not familiar with RPGs, they're role-playing games, but the reason they're kind of addictive is you get to see a character grow. You yeah. get to choose what skills they have. You get to kind of mold them as you, as you want. Yeah. And I think for a lot of us who have hobbies, we like seeing something start in one place and end in another. And that itself is a narrative, you know? Yeah. I think about growing up, we had a neighbor that was really into gardening, 
But the way he talked about his gardening was no different. It was, I want to take this from a patch of grass. You mm-hmm. know, I need to mulch it. And then in a couple months, it's got beautiful roses and flowers. That tells a different kind of story, perhaps, but it's still a narrative. Yeah. And so that's kind of how we got into this. Uh, we, we have a podcast because we're able to record and we think at least our family will listen. So that's, <laughs> they're obligated to listen. So High aspirations. We, we have aspirations, yeah. Uh, but I, I hope that whatever you bring, you find kindred spirits in us. It's worth mentioning probably from the start that we're both ministers. So yeah, yeah. as we talk about narratives and stories, we have a certain perspective, obviously the Christian perspective that we bring. But we also recognize, and this is kind of where the tag light comes from, what makes the secular sacred, that we're all bound together by stories. And I have many friends that are differing levels of religious, mm-hmm. and yet these hobbies have often been a fertile place for our conversation yeah. to engage. So with that, and welcoming you in, let's just jump right into kind of our deep dive segment where we want to talk about who is the aforementioned Dr. Carl Grodd. By the way, I love that name. There's a little contentiousness in our well, in our team. I think about, it's your attempt to make it as obscure as possible of a name. But I was hoping it would be kind of chic obscure, like chic obscure. Well, you, know, you know, like that that one club or restaurant. You kind of can't remember the name, but if you do remember, then you you know that you're in. Yeah, so. yeah. I think of it more like on Mean Girls when she's trying to make fetch happen. <laughs> that is. An incredibly hurtful and accurate reference. <laughs> All right. Uh, I've, I've been mean girl today. That's something that just, that just occurred. Still a good movie. So we were talking about Dr. Carl Grodd, <laughs> and you may have noticed the graphic uh, in the intro that at first seems like the side profile of Sherlock Holmes, very famous kind of profile of Sherlock Holmes. He's got the deer stalker. He's got the pipe. But if you look a little bit more closely at the image, if don't rewind now. This is like telling you to turn off the podcast. At a later date, if you want to go back and look at the image, you'll notice the face looks a little different. And that's because we have substituted in a gorilla. A gorilla. And you're thinking- Why a gorilla? Why a gorilla? Those are all worthwhile questions. And we're not going to answer any of those questions. Just like Lost, we're going to leave you to the last season with nothing satisfying. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, is it too soon and too obscure? I don't think that's too obscure. I just- No, it was the most popular show in America and I'm still upset about it. I- I just never got on the last bandwagon and I still hold candlelit vigils for all you fans out there that got to that last season and thought those writers had any idea what they were doing. So. Hey, what does it mean, Jameson? Well, I think it just means they were in purgatory the whole time. No, 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 I lost. <laughs> I'm trying to get you back on track. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, I just thought you were lamenting still about no. lost. So, Dr. Carl Grodd, <laughs> we're going to break it up in two parts. So the doctor is uh, kind of a, an affectionate title we put on the front, but... The two names are the things that are more kind of important. So I'll go first to talk about Grodd. Uh, Carl may not seem as obscure, but uh, I think that once Burnside explains his bit on that, he's the theological expert. I'm just here to <laughs> reference the moldy comic book boxes I have. But there is a famous DC comic book villain called Gorilla Grodd. Uh, he appears for the first time in Flash, I think, number 106. Uh, it's actually a bummer. I, I collect vintage comic books and it's not the best comic to collect because it was back in the day when they used to introduce multiple villains per issue. So like the Pied Piper is on that cover. And I'm like, you are introducing Gorilla Grodd who will, I think he's up into, for most lists, he's like almost in the top 50 of best comic book villains of all time. And, and his, Pied Piper's number one, so. Oh my gosh, yes. 
If you haven't, if you ever read Flash 106 for Pied Piper, then why are you even reading comics? We, I said we wouldn't digress. The point is, he was a incredibly intelligent gorilla that had advanced mental capabilities. In fact, he had mind control and different kinds of telepathy. And I will say, if you've never read comics, you need to realize uh, comic books are a little bit like, I love this from Pirates of the Caribbean, their continuity are more like guidelines. So what characters <laughs> can and can't do, it kind of depends on what the writer wants to do. But so Gorilla Grodd has always been super intelligent. He comes from a place called Gorilla City, which are these incredibly advanced, almost if it's like the, it's like, uh, George of the Jungle meets the Jetsons. Yeah. That's how I think of it. I mean, that kind of city, but they're all gorillas. And his desire is to use his great intellect and mind control abilities to take over the planet. I mean, classic villain. Is that but. close to Gorillapolis? Wow. Uh, that is a great question that we won't answer. So uh, that's kind of the background on that. We wanted to pick uh, someone who kind of represented someone who was sophisticated, intelligent, and, and nerdy. And you can't get much nerdier than, I think, Gorilla Grodd. But tell us a little bit more about the Carl, because I think so, that guy's at least human. Well, and the doctor's not affectionate. This part of it is Dr. Carl Bart. Uh, so it's Dr. Carl and Grodd. Right. I was just saying it was affectionate for Grodd. That was my piece. I didn't, he, he's not actually a doctor. I mean, he's probably smart enough to, he probably has an honorary doctor degree. Do they give oh. out honorary doctorates to supervillains? I don't so, know. That's a great question. Um, Carl Bart was a, Swiss Reformed theologian who did the bulk of his writings after World War I, starting in the 20s. He was a prolific person. Uh, but to really understand his approach, uh, you need to know who he's really responding to. He was trained by um, a, a lot of liberal theologians, uh, most significantly von Harnack, who really looked at Christianity as there is a truth contained within it, um, a kernel, and there's a lot of things that have come up around Christianity um, that he would call a husk. So we need to shed all of this bulk and get down to it. So people at this time were looking at the Bible as a historical textbook saying, how do we get rid of all the mythology that's in here? How do we get rid of um, some people were uh, really uncomfortable with the concept of miracles. So they said, well, miracles can't scientifically happen, but we still think that Jesus is the son of God and had great teaching. So how do we strip away this mysticism? How do we strip away um, uh, Greek philosophy, for example, from the 2000 year development of, um, of theology? And Karl Barth was, his entire career and the movement he started was a reaction against this kind of liberal theology and said, no, the only way that we can truly um, speak about God is by honoring uh, scripture really, and as the word of God. So in, uh, the previous approach was to start with what we know, what we can observe and almost like a scientific thing and try to build up to an understanding of God. And Karbar was to say, we should take what we have received from God, which is revelation. And so we're gonna start up here with the revealed word of God. And what we're gonna learn about ourselves uh, will be learned from the revelation. So a top down kind of model. Um, and so he really came to it with a really scriptural approach. And because of that, he wrote a ton uh, about a lot of different topics. There wasn't like a, one central argument I can clearly uh, say to you, but he's a very foundational uh, theologian for me. And not only that he had a lot of great ideas, uh, but also kind of created this new movement of, of theology, which continues to this day, um, I think, you know, 
Jameson and I both went to Duke, and I think Carl Bart was mentioned in almost every class. Uh, so whether you've read him or not, he's 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 part of the killer bees. If we can use use a little Houston Astros language <laughs> there, but if you're talking about two very defining theologians that came out of von Harnack's school of thought, I mean, you can't go wrong with Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Karl Barth. I mean, those are kind of the, some. One was kind of the more pragmatic theologian, and then Karl Barth, like you said, wrote more volumes of work than you think one man. <laughs> outside of Alexander Hamilton, according to the musical, apparently, but. Copious, prolific, I think is the word you use. That's a good way to put it. So one example of his insights is um, there's there's long time a debate about um, predestination. And some people said predestination is true. Other people said predestination is false. This kind of idea that people had been labeled by God from the beginning of time as either saved or damned. Um, can I say damned on the podcast? I think because it's a religious context, we'll allow it. But okay. if you could be mindful between that and the, <laughs> the adult bookstores, whatever you're talking about earlier. So, <laughs> what do you, okay. Anyway, um, it was either to accept or deny it. His scripture, I mean, he was a reformed position, but he still said, scripture says that we have been predestined. So, what do we do with that if it is true? And it was him who came up with the insight that says that is Jesus who is the one who's predestined. And through him, we have been chosen to have the, you know, the capability of participating with Christ. So that it's not each person to, because if, if, um, if everyone was determined, then the work of Jesus wouldn't matter. If, if people from the beginning of time were determined um, as saved or not from the beginning of time, then Jesus didn't need to die. So it's just this kind of flipping of the inside of saying that Jesus is the one who is predestined. And I can talk forever about that, but just to give you a sense of, of who he is. Right. And so coming back uh, from, <laughs> from Burnside's PhD studies, no, that's actually really helpful. The reason we have, I think, Carl Barth in the name as well is we want to recognize from the beginning that we all have really significant worldviews that inform us. I mean, yes. we could talk about, and this is kind of the purpose of the day is the power of stories and narrative. But for most of us, we bring something to stories and that's why we resonate with them. Mm-hmm. We're not necessarily blank slates. We don't show up to something with with no kind of cultural or, you know, family or whatever whatever has been poured into you. That's what resonates with that story. Now you can learn something new, but what we appreciate about Karl Barth, at least from our perspective, is that he acknowledged that if we're Christian, we need to we just need to be upfront with what is driving our exploration, not the other way other way around. Right. And I would argue for most of us, um, and I don't. I think even to, I'd be, I'm comfortable saying this even about science. I think with the scientific method, even scientists bring in their own worldview to what will happen in that process. Because I'm totally in the camp that I believe the scientific method is neutral. It is a, it is a, a way to test hypothesis. I mean, it's, it's right. no different than a doctor hitting me in the knee to test my reflexes. <laughs> like there, there's not intent, but they still bring this worldview that we are going to, to build from the bottom up. Whereas we might say we're coming from the top down. And what I love about this podcast and what I hope that we're able to do is to acknowledge how we approach literally this table. And I hope that you see what we have. We have one of my favorite board games, Cowboy Bebop, which is weird to me. It's almost mainstream now how popular it's become, but one of the most defining animes I've ever watched. And one of my favorite mangas, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying Japanese comic book in Akira. But all of these have stories that will resonate with us, even if we bring different worldviews. And I think that's what we want to do on this podcast is yeah. to acknowledge 
how we can share in stories because if they're powerful and we can agree on this and have good conversation over this and share ideas. And this can be a way that um, I want to be careful and, and not just talk about like evangelizing to give it too, too strong of a, of a theological connotation, but more about we can be normal people together. I, mean, yeah. I, I don't, they don't test you at the door of every movie to say, what is your religious persuasion before we let you in to watch this? But it would be interesting to say, depending on what religious persuasion or non-religious or wherever you come from, how do you approach this movie? What has influenced you and what do you take from yeah. it? You know, why do certain stories have more meaning than others to certain groups of people? That's kind of a fascinating Yeah. So one, of the, one of the approaches we want to bring, I think, is, is looking at these things not just as a sense of enjoyment, but actually paying attention to those markers of story what what is the implicit assumptions, philosophy, morality um, that lie behind what we're doing, right? Um, and and a lot of them are specifically engineered to make you ask those kinds of questions. You can't watch Batman without wondering about vigilante justice and is that good or bad. And and in many senses, it's meant to evoke those emotions, but sometimes we don't add that layer. And so in, in preaching, one of the main things that I look at it as is realizing everyone makes decisions and lives their lives primarily because of the stories that are ingrained in them. Yes. It's not, it's not just uh, an abstract philosophy that you read and you say, I'm going to live my life by this, but it's a story. And so we have the option of, of, of if we can step away from ourselves of choosing a story uh, that we can live by. And if we don't reflect on our own life, we'll live by whatever story has been given to us. Maybe something we picked up that maybe isn't good for us, but we haven't looked at it. Um, and so getting into the, into the story of God is something that you live, is a, that kind of choice that you make to say, I'm, I'm participating in this. And so I can play King of Tokyo. <laughs> it's a great game, by the way. You should check it out. I can Who play King so if you don't know what King of Tokyo is, essentially imagine Yahtzee meets Godzilla. And if that excites you at all, you should pick it up. But yeah, I mean, I guess there's, there's not very many examples of, of how Space Penguin is acting in a moral manner. But, you know, I can approach that as being part of, <laughs> yeah, of the right. story that I've created and, and bring my own insights by the way, Ye Yellow, example. the board sorry, company, is, in front of me. Is, is not sponsoring us yet. However, Yellow, if you're hearing this, we love King of Tokyo. <laughs> They're the board game producer. Yeah, and I want to be careful too because I think some people may hear story and think what we're saying is make-believe. Like, oh, yeah. I think, and we need to be careful. Story, sacred truth, sacred myth, sacred story, what it indicates is it's your experience of a deeper reality. And so yeah. if for us, if we say it's our story or the story of God, what we mean is we think there is a reality that we're experiencing and to the best of our ability, that's what this story is. Now, we're also clear, because I think the Bible is clear on this as well, that our perception is not always reality. And so that's where some of that reflection has to come. Even if you, if you think you're coming at it the right way, there needs to be the humility. And I love what um, Neil deGrasse Tyson says, you know, the famous... Uh, astrophysicist, when he says, if you're on the cutting edge of science, you need to have humility because you're literally exploring mm -hmm. the, the verge of what you know and what you don't know. And I think for a lot of us, when we're growing, we need to recognize we're on the cutting edge of who we are between what we know and what we don't know. It doesn't mean that those are some core principles that don't matter or are true. But you need to be humble enough to, if you're trying to grow, then you may not 
know something or something may have to change. What we hope on this podcast is that we kind of talk and discuss and grow and change together. And to be upfront, like I said, about where we come from, but you know, as we hopefully hear from you and able to engage with you, we'd love to hear where you come from, your, your decisions. I mean, I, love, I would love just to have a conversation on why does Batman the Animated Series speak to you? Yeah. And now it may be good, Burnside, we, we've been talking a lot about the, the, the title, giving you a, a broad sweep of what we want Dr. Carl Grad to be. And I know like, like anyone else, maybe some specific examples of, of some stories or narratives that have been help, like, kind of impactful to us. You know, we talked a little bit about what drew us into the hobby, but now we can talk about some, some defining narratives that we've really reflected on. And for me, because I'm, I'm still running and talking here, so I'm going to go ahead and just take the lead. Uh, I didn't let you go first last time. So uh, I, one of the most defining TV shows of all time for me is The Twilight Zone. Uh, if Batman the Animated Series drew me in as a kid, The Twilight Zone is what really was a TV show that engaged my mind and really wrestled with in creative ways conversations on censorship and isolation and what makes real relationship, what builds upon community. The fact that it came out in 1959 sometimes, and yet it's, or I want to say Orwellian, think 1984 Animal Farm, but it's lens. I mean, what Rod Sterling was able to do with little 20-minute vignettes is incredible to me. And I've never, at that point, I'd never watched a show where every episode I walked away and I had kind of a cool story and then I had kind of a deeper truth I had to reflect on. One of my favorite episodes is actually in my office. Um, it's called The Eye of the, the Beholder. But, it, you know, the, from the classic saying, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I have a hard time talking about this episode because it almost ruins it if I name it. But essentially, it's a society in which there's a distortion of what is considered beautiful. And this whole episode, you're thinking that this, this woman is disfigured by normal standards. And at the end, you realize the tables are really flipped and what is beautiful is only because there's a certain group of people in power and all. It's, it's, it kind of blew my mind as a kid. That's, I just have a distinct memory of watching that. And I left and I was like, I, is the world real? What is real? But what was so cool about that is, is that was challenging narratives that I had from my faith or my family or my, you know, my community. And I had to reflect on, well, then how do I treat other people? Mm-hmm. How do I view them? But that's a TV show doing that. Yeah, that's an, I think that episode came out in 1960. So that's, you know, if I watched that, and I think I, I really watched most of the Twilight Zone when I was in high school, so 2000. That's 40-year gap between a black and white television show that aired on CBS and when I watched it on reruns, and I can't even remember where. That's, that's, that's the power of stories is they kind of <laughs> yeah. transcend time. So maybe what's one that has spoken to you? <laughs> yeah, um, I just wanted to say from earlier, like, yeah, story does not mean something that's fictional. Uh, that's a good good clarification um, again. So thank you for that. It just it means that we have a, a collected experience by which we process and understand our lives. Um, so answering the question, one of the the biggest narratives I think of my formative years, like when I was a child, I wasn't watching Twilight Zone. I've seen it as an adult, but it doesn't have that kind of formative. So I mean, for me, as Star Wars, I think that's an obvious example for most of us. But that was my first time to ever see a, a trilogy, an epic of following characters. You know, George Lucas very much modeled it after the hero's journey. Um, so in, in many ways, it is one of the most generic stories, but it was done in a way that, that definitely drew me in. And as I've grown up, I've seen all the, his influences and how he was using all these different parts of old cinema um, and, and different and different. Um, genres of cinema really uh but 
for me, it was foundational in, in the sense of, you know, creating this good versus bad, this, this light Jedi uh, duty kind of service to, versus this empire. Um, and so it was, it was basic enough, but also drew me in to kind of do this uh, kind of thinking. And science fiction, for me, has always done the same thing that you're talking about. It asks those questions it asks um, about morality and all those sorts of things. So for me, Star Trek, watching that was the, the, the point where I was like, they were wrestling with the prime directive and how do we do this? So I personally love Star Trek because I just stood around and talked. So you're publicly confessing to liking Star Trek? This is recorded, you know. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it's cool now. Is it? Sure, keep going. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to break your stride. But the point, of, the point of, the, of the Star Trek was to raise issues to say, okay, well, we could scientifically help them, but they don't believe in science, and we don't want to violate their religious views. So where does that inter- interaction happen? Um, just all those sorts of conversations is what uh, science fiction really provides um, in many ways. It, it, it portrays a future that's just disconnected from us enough where we can think about these issues of deep morality and stuff as not being really connected in our lives where we have these, like, and automatic opinions. That's a good point. Uh, and I'm teasing a little bit about him being a trekkie. I love Star Trek. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he, he actually has the Klingon translation of the Bible, so you'll have to ask him to read it to you sometime. But the, the, the best part of that show is the Prime Directive. The idea that what a powerful conversation point, and we'll probably not talk about it too much because I can imagine this will be a podcast episode, but what, what, what allows us to filter out if you can't help, but should you help? And that's really what Star Trek is all about to me. You come across, we, you know, civilizations that are nearly as advanced as the Federation, and then how do you engage with them? Um, and it is, it is a very good, good show. Well, I shouldn't say that. There are certain Star Trek shows that are good, is the way that I will, I will say that. I'm trying not to go on a rant. Uh, I also think it's interesting you bring up Star Wars, because it's almost Star Fantasy. I think about this a lot, too, and this, this is really splitting hairs, but even that... Is not the, the it's not normal sci-fi as I think about sci-fi. It, it's kind of if there's a spectrum of Star Trek on one and a Lord oh, of the Rings, absolutely. Lord of the Rings on the other. I think you put Star Wars towards the middle and it leans towards Lord of the Rings. Like it's it's a it's a typical fantasy hero's journey epic, but set in space. Yeah, it could be a western. Right, it <laughs> and actually, it could this, be anything. This, so this we, we'll try to drop in little nerd tidbits for you, but I mean, Star Wars is based off of the work of. Uh, I, I can't call him underappreciated, but maybe people don't know him as well as they should, which is Akira Kurosawa. Yeah. Uh, I mean, his, what he did with Samurai not only influenced uh, the, next, the next one I wanted to bring up, which is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, one of the most formative movies I watched as a kid, also probably arguably the best Western so good. ever made. But that was even based on Kurosawa's work, who did what Star Wars did, he actually, I think Star Wars is based off of his movie Hidden Fortress, if I'm... It's not based off well, of it, but... sure, sure, the, sure. The structure of having, um, you know, two characters, like the the place that the droids play, right. like the screen wipes. I mean, there. if you watch it, you'll see a lot, a lot of similarities. That's fair. What I mean is, it's interesting that here is... When, when people think about American cinema, Star Wars is quintessential American cinema, and yet... You think about Hidden Fortress, it is so Japanese, and yet it's still a powerful story that speaks, but it's obviously been translated through samurai the same way that Westerns were translated 
yeah. into America. And so that, that again is the power of that story that can drift. Like the hero's journey, I like what you said, is almost an archetype of sorts. And yet different communities pick up on it and they imprint what is culturally relevant to them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really cool. Uh, and I, we've talked a lot today, and so I'll just say briefly about the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a Western, when I watched it, that really brought up, I think, morality and ethics uh, for the first time. It's, it's, I don't know, there's something about it. I watched it for the first time, I think, in junior high, and I just remember leaving and thinking, were there good guys in this? <laughs> I, I, I don't know that's... I know, I know Batman could be seen as an anti-hero, but yeah. overall, I mean, he's still Batman, so you kind of give him the hero. But I remember watching The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and I got done, and I just had never watched a film that had that kind of moral ambiguity. ambiguity. Yeah. I mean, Blondie, who's Clint Eastwood's character, you know, the man with no name, um, one of my favorite, however you collect those movies together, you know, that, that, his archetype character in that I love, the man with no name series. I know that there's technically a series, but there's some that kind of extend beyond it. And literally all that means is he's literally just a character that doesn't really have a real name. I and mean, they call him a nickname the whole time. The just, man with no name. Yeah. Well, they don't call him that. They call him Blondie. But my point is in that movie. But uh, that, I'm sorry, I'm catching myself from going on a rant. But my, I remember leaving and asking my parents, like, what does that mean? And they're like, well, sometimes, you know, you, you won't always have the kind of black and white that you want, Jameson. There's going to be gray and people just have to make the best decisions. But... You know, when I was 12, that, that blew my mind. Yeah. Because I just thought, wait, you, the Westerns, you got to have the one really good the guy, good, the yeah. sheriff character. The Duke. And, and, and at the time, I understood maybe the sheriff character, his marriage fell down and he was drinking, but he would come, you know, John Wayne would come back and sober up. And, but I'd never watched a whole film where by the end, you're like, was anyone? Yeah. <laughs> was anyone good? Yeah. Not to mention the score in that movie. Holy mother. That was the first time I ever listened to a soundtrack and wanted to buy it. I actually remember trying to get it on CD so I could listen to it because just the, the scoundrel, if you have not listened to um, the composer's name is leaving me at the moment, he just passed away and I cannot think of it. And that's terrible. But the point is, if you listen to the soundtrack for that, it, it shows you, and we would talk about music at a different point, the power of music and how it can instill feelings in a scene. Uh, so I, you know, as we, as we draw up this section, I, I want to give you a shout out, uh, Burnside, if you had another example you wanted to share, maybe of a narrative or story that shaped you. Star Wars and Star Trek are great. Um, so I just wanted to, to even it out by doing two and two. But if you, if you want to get the I'll, win here. I'll just pick up right where you, where you left off about moral ambiguity. Um, that, that kind of feeling is like whenever you watch like a gangster movie oh, or like Sopranos, is just that realization where no one in this is good. <laughs> yeah, by, that, by the classic ha- definition of good, these are not the people I'm bringing over to meet grandma, necessarily. Right, but there, there are stretches of the Old Testament where it's my, very much like that. It's like, who's doing point. the least bad right now? The book, and, of, the book of Judges is a little grim. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little grim. And, you know, it, it really points to the fact that you can really love, like, a specific action or um, characteristic of a person, but they may not always live up to your expectations, which, I mean, it's that kind of perspective helps you, like, live life in general, you know? And something like Superman's a lot more idealistic. Um, so, I'm yeah, not, we I'm look not, forward I'm to... Taking, I'm not taking the Superman bait. We look forward to exploring all sorts of things like this, um, narratives and structure and getting, getting more into the nitty-gritty of things as we go forward, for sure. And we won't often do this in a podcast, but definitely because this is our intro one, we'll say what we want it, what we want to do in every deep dive is to tackle 
uh, either a story with examples or maybe why, like, so for instance, it'd be the difference between if we want to talk about The Last Jedi, which we're planning to talk about in our next podcast, we, there's two ways to tackle it, I think. Either we talk about The Last Jedi and what are the stories that come out of it, or we talk about a kind of story that The Last Jedi represents. And so either way, what we're really exploring is how does this median, these hobbies we love, you know, video games, music, anime, board games, uh, whatever else we want to we want to throw in, comic books. How do those stories interact with us, and how do we interact with them? What do we take from them? What can we leave with them? And then how do they challenge us? Yeah. And, and then you know, ultimately, I think there will be always some spiritual reflection on our part because that is undeniably. I always tell people, if you ask me my favorite hobbies, God's an understood. <laughs> but uh, the reason I say that kind of tongue in cheek is that I know that influences me, and I can't right. I can't turn that off. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important for all of us to maybe start to identify what are those things in us that's hard for us to turn off because that influences a lot of how we perceive things. We also want to end uh, every show with what I'm calling 92nd Nostradamus. Uh, I'm, I may never say that again. In fact, saying it out loud, it sounds terrible. Yeah. But the idea is, <laughs> the idea, it'll be in the script notes for the show. But we want to do one thing we're excited about that's coming up over the next couple of weeks. What's one thing we're looking ahead to? We want to give a shout out to it and just to show off our nerddom because this is a place in which we can be excited about nerdy things and receive less judgment than we typically would by our regular set of family and friends. So what's something coming up in the next couple of weeks you're really excited about? First of all, once I hit 30, I stopped feeling judgment for being nerdy. I don't know if that ever happened to you, but I've shed it. I've shed it? Well, yeah, I've shed it. Well, I'm he, very uh, proud. Send me the name of the retreat center you went to. I'll try, um, but... Yeah, this is super nerdy, but I'm looking forward to the new edition of Warhammer 40K. Oh, yeah. When is that coming out? Um, it should be out within the next month or so. It's kind of a complicated story. Basically, they sold it in a box, and it ha it sold out immediately, and it goes on from there. But yes, there's a new rule set coming out, which means new models and new miniatures. I paint Space Marines, and... I want to buy more Space Marines. I'll buy any Space Marines they're willing to sell me, so I'm just waiting for them to make more so I can paint them. One thing we always try to do, uh, and I'll do it here for him on his behalf, is we'll always try to explain part of our nerddom. So if you don't know what Warhammer oh. 40, 40K is, I I'm doing this because Burns will have, sure, to, we'll, we'll have to help out I can a little it. bit more for me than I will for him. <laughs> no, no, I'll explain it. I'll explain it for you. 40K okay. is, because I think it's interesting to see if I know it as well as it, I should. Go ahead. So there are something called collectible miniature games, or uh, and this is a tabletop battle game. Essentially, think about if your grandfather used to play or do Civil War reenactments with miniatures, but put creatures and, you know, genetically engineered men from 40,000 years in the future onto your table. But the idea is you get these models, you get to, build them, sand them down, paint them. You get to give them your own artistic design and there's rules if you can actually fight. I would say the thing that I do appreciate about 40K is I, it almost feels like it's 50-50 between folks that collect them to paint them as a hobby and those that actually play the game. Yeah. But that's the beauty of it is it doesn't matter. You can do either. <laughs> uh, and so what Burnside's excited about is that every once in a while, there's probably some deep story reason that they reboot the franchise, right? Not just for money, so we'll, but also for money. So they're coming out with a new edition, which that's exciting. New edition, new rules, and new models. Uh, yes, I do enjoy the more modeling, painting side of it all. It is 
I'm sure I'll talk about it more, but it's a moment of zen for me to sit down from the day and just zone out and paint for a it's, while. You've gotten quite good at it. Some of the stuff I've seen you paint lately has been very nice. In well, fact, I you. keep trying to slide some of my stuff to his house. But like, yeah, <laughs> why don't you work on Into work the on queue. This? Into the queue. What are you excited about? So I am super excited about a new board game that's coming out. It's from Leader Games, L-E-D-E-R. Uh, if you are familiar with board games at all, you may have heard of one of their more popular titles called Root. It's kind of hit the world by storm. It's kind of like Redwall, if any of us are familiar with that book series, but think um, kind of Robin Hood, Robin Hood meets forest creatures. And it's a really interesting tactical game, but they're making a game that's more family-friendly, and I say that because Root is fairly complicated for how cute the foxes are. That's what I always tell people. If you see the cats on the box, know this is a lot more complicated. But it's about kids, uh, recruiting kids. You get to collect your two resources are pizza and toys, and you're trying to build the best fort. But it's, it's a really cool uh, card game uh, that's based a little bit off of Race for the Galaxy, which if you're into board games is a very famous board game. But it, it involves a lot of... Uh, building up your own set of friends. When you play cards, other people are allowed to follow your turn, which just means that they can copy what you do. And the artwork looks great, and it's supposed to play in under like 25, 30 minutes. So I'm, I'm really big on kind of breezy games. It's on pre-order right now, so if you want to go to Leader Games, you can order it. I think it goes to, this is maybe more information than one. Often, board game distributors will make things available on their site, and then when it goes to mass market, you can go to any of the many wonderful either local board game stores or online distributors, depending on how you like to get your board games. So I'm really excited about that. It's supposed to ship, I think, the first or second week of August. So, but they are not supporting us. He's just he just knows all this. I I am I'm hoping <laughs> someone from Leader Games is out there being like, you know, uh-huh. that's someone I can get behind. So Fort F O R T. And I, I I just look at it. It looks awesome. I do want to say one shout out. If you build your fort the quickest. You want to know what the uh, like kind of the the extra mile trophy is for the game? A macaroni sculpture. Nice. So I hope to one day proudly display the macaroni sculpture and say that I stole that from Burnside. <laughs> well, we really appreciate that you've joined us today. I feel like we've had a really good talk about kind of what this podcast is about, what we're going to be doing in the weeks to come. Uh, one of the things we want to we want to do is get consistent with how our podcast operates, and then we probably will eventually branch out into some more shorter specials, maybe in some areas where we'll review music, review movies. Uh, both of us have been in, into records, you know, at times, and, and kind of vinyl, if you will. And all of that, we hope, will continue to engage with you as we seek to explore what makes the secular sacred. So once again, my name is Jameson Doring. I'm your resident enthusiast. Oh, I'm Ben Burnside. Our resident theologian. There we go. We've had a great time with you. Until next time.